podcast uses profanity and topics may be disturbing for some listeners. Listen at your own risk. Welcome back to Hell on Hills podcast. I'm Bryce. I'm Amanda. And hello. Hi. To episode 49. 49, not 48. Yeah, get it right, Amanda. My bad. Because I didn't... Listen, just because I didn't update the spreadsheet with what we did last time on time does not mean you're allowed to get it wrong. You know what? That didn't even occur to me. Yeah, this is your fault. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely not my fault, but I'll let (laughs) you pretend. Because not only do we have a calendar, which also is off right now, um, but (laughs) you were there on episode 48. So... That's true. I was there. I think I spoke on that episode. I think you did. I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Fairly certain you did. 92% sure. I'll give you the other 98. Uh, what? I'll give you the other eight. <laughs> You'll give me the other 98%. Look, I'm, I, don't, I can't talk about math right now. It's fine. I'll let it slide this time. All right. How are you? You know what? I'm pretty good. We had a good weekend. I put up some curtains. I made some little bead curtain ties, some little wooden bead, oh, like ooh. very boho farmhouse. And then Buck Whoa. ate one of them when we left him out to go grocery shopping. And then he shit on the floor. And it was just, it was, just, it was a good weekend. That sounds like a really great weekend. Yeah. yeah. Pretty par for the course. How about yeah. you? Uh, we've actually had a lazy weekend. It's been really nice. Um, it was, it was like yesterday. I don't think Cody got out of bed until like noon. And then what? I know. Granted, Cody, he tries to stay up pretty late because of his schedule. So, I mean, it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. Um, and then I just researched and yeah, I mean, I haven't really done a whole ton of anything. Oh, I did. It's not in here. I did start reading one of my new books. Which one? Uh, the Cursed Objects. So does that mean we're going to hear about that soon? Yeah. Oh, today. hell yeah. You'll hear about a little bit of it today. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, I did realize, see, we were supposed to record yesterday. And mm-hmm. we did not because I had a headache for three days. And I had one when I woke up this morning, too. But it finally, I like, I went back to sleep and it went away. It's because we have a freaking cold front. It's going to be like 56 degrees tonight. Ooh. What the oh, hell? Thinking, you know what? We say that's so cold, but then I sit here and think, yeah, but it gets down to like below freezing here. But then in the springtime, 56 is going to feel so warm. Oh, I'm, I'm in ready. Oh, I'm yeah, so right. re- I'm going to watch a scary movie. I'm going to get some freaking dad. I don't know. I got tea, hot chocolate, cocoa. I'm so ready. Bring I don't on want the summer freaking to end. fall. No, um, I don't want summer to end. I don't um, want summer to exist. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's just because you grew up where it was summer three months or three, three quarters of the year. Yeah, I was about to say it's, it's summer like nine months down there. We got like a whole infant gestation period. I don't know. I have a whole, I, I get every season, so, you know. I do now. It's wonderful. It's lovely. But it's not the same as what I get still. Yeah, no, it sucks. It's not fair. 
one day me and James were just gonna I'm just gonna talk him into like we just keep moving north until we're at like Alaska. I don't know. Just move to Utah. It's fine. You'll get the every world that you want. You'll get the summer, the winter, the fall, springtime. You get all the seasons. So when you need a change up, you'll get it. It's just the weather might be a little bipolar on occasion. It's fine. Oh, that's fine. It's like that in Alabama. It's I think it's like that everywhere. Yeah. I just know in Alabama it's the opposite. Cause like if it gets cold, I can deal with that. If it stays cold and it gets hot a couple days, cool. Okay. But down there, it's like you're wearing shorts on Christmas and then it's Ew. 30 degrees for two weeks after it. And then you're back to shorts. I'm yeah. on it. I will wear the shorts for Christmas. Okay. Let's just, you move to Mobile and I'll move to Utah. We'll just trade. You can move to okay. Arkansas and we'll just trade houses for a little while. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. Don't tell just your tell Cody. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to get on a plane and do it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, if you tell Cody, he's going to tell James, and then James is going to say no. Well, if I tell Cody, reason, he'll probably he say no, so... Why do our husbands just want to live with us so bad? Killjoys. Ugh, I don't get it. <laughs> but, anyways, yeah, so it's just been um, been a lazy weekend, so it's been kind of nice. That's good. I'm happy for you. I mean, it's yeah. been like that here, but I'm happy for you, too. Yeah, it'll be good. So, but that means that next weekend cannot be a lazy weekend because we moved recordings, Amanda. Tell that to my head. I am. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) All right. Did you want to do the shout out this week? Or did you want me to? Did you Uh, already forget who we said? I already forgot who you said. Okay. So we're just going to acknowledge, we want to shout out Tennessee. You guys, I can't believe Amanda forgot this. You guys have been here uh, almost since the beginning, I think. You've been one of the first ones, first states that we had. So we just want to say we acknowledge you. We see you. We really, really appreciate you. And Amanda has something she wants to say so badly. You're the only 10 I see. (laughs) I gave her permission to take that (laughs) line. (laughs) Pretty sure the conversation was um, both of us wanting to say it, but. Well, you're lucky because if you didn't let me say it, I was just going to shout out Albuquerque again. Albuquerque, yeah, because you know that's in Arizona or something, according to Amanda. <laughs> I've t- I talked about it on the last three episodes now. Okay, like, why let it die? We'll never forget you guys, Albuquerque. <laughs> we might forget where you are, but we'll never forget you. <laughs> um, We also just want to say that our Discord is up and going. We've been having a lot of fun on there. So if you guys want to join us on Discord, Talk True Crime, Paranormal, whatever it is, pick on Cody, pick on James. They're both on there um, to be picked on for for that purpose. They're on there because we told them they were getting picked on. Yeah. But um, if you have anything that you want to talk about on there, just kind of join that community. You definitely can. Just let us know if you want to be added. Uh, Best way is going to be to uh, message us. On one of the social media platforms, which is our Instagram is at Hell on Heels Podcast, Twitter at Hell on Heels Pod, Facebook Hell on Heels Podcast. Uh, what else do we have? That's it, right? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Email us at Hell on Heels Podcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, just get in touch with us and we'll get you added to that Discord server. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do want to talk about our Patreon just a little bit. We're really excited. Um, we know that a lot of you guys are very upset that Breeze left, but that's okay. She's made her decision 
uh, that her career is more important. But that means that Amanda and I can move forward with our with our plans on Patreon. And we've got some fun things coming up that we're planning. So be on the lookout for that. It'll be one hell of a time. Ooh, that was a good Ooh. one. I didn't come prepared this week. <laughs> you don't come prepared any week. So yeah, fair. Fair. Fair is fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we also are working on getting more bloopers, additional content up for you guys. Um, Amanda had a great idea today, so she'll start doing that on Patreon. I'm, I love that you looked at me like, what great idea. Oh, no, I had a pop-up, and it was on this Um, monitor right where your face was. I was like, listen, I'm going to give you credit where credit's due. (laughs) But (laughs) So we're going to have a lot of fun on there. So join us on Patreon. We do have different levels of support, starting at $3 a month and going up to, I think, $10 a month. Um, I think that's all we've got to cover on that front. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. I think you pretty much nailed all of it, which I'm severely appreciative for. Yeah, it's because you don't have to do it. Yes. We talk about it beforehand, and then I'm like, fine, I'll just do it. So She's great, y'all. Get you a brace. Y'all, just, for those of you that are braces out there, just push back. Learn to say no. (laughs) I have not learned to say no yet, so, you know, do what I say, not as I do. For all the Amandas, get yourself a Bryce, just not mine. Yeah, she's not sharing. Uh, No, not good at that. (laughs) Listen, she's already got to share with Cody, and there's kind of already a conflict there. Mm -hmm. Anytime Cody comes in, her middle finger is up. So, (laughs) Well, so is his shirt. Well. In my defense. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, he just, he doesn't like shirts. I don't know what to say on that. (laughs) All right, well. His house, actually my house, my rules. He just looks here and pays for it and bought it. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he got. That's what he signed up when we got married. He knew. Um, Elvis told him, so it's fine. All right. Well, the rumor has it that you're child free right now. So you might want to be child free during your story. Oh, God. For once. I, I can tell you're so stoked. Annie's taking a nap. I don't know what to do with my hands. (laughs) You need like a little baby doll to pat now. Close enough. Gatorade bottle. (laughs) Close enough. (laughs) Okay. So I chose a story this week. It might not sound familiar, but just stay with me. You know this story. 100%. You know this story. Well, I'm going to prove you wrong today. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) So Catherine Susan Genovese was born on July 7th, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York. She was known as Kitty, and she was the oldest of five kids from an Italian-American parents, an Italian-American couple, excuse me, Vincent and Rachel Genovese. Kitty was said to be a good student in school. She was voted the class cut up. She was said to have a sunny disposition, and people said she was wise beyond her years. She graduated in 1935, and not long after, her mom actually witnessed a murder on the streets of New York. Uh, And that's when the family was like, suck it, New York. We're going to Connecticut. I mean, can you blame them? Absolutely not. I mean, they had had five kids. This is a family, you know? They want to... I can't argue that that's a great environment to raise your family in. After you've seen a murder, like... Mm -hmm. Done. Going elsewhere. Yeah. Goodbye. I 
I don't blame them. I imagine that would take some time to get over. A, a little bit, yeah. Maybe like a day or two. Yeah, a day or two, a good therapist, some whiskey, I don't know. Yeah, yeah we can get whatever over you need. Or maybe some wood wood alcohol, what was it? Ah, uh, yes, yeah, some, some nice wood alcohol soaked oysters. Yes, that. Mm-hmm. And a tin and sardine sandwich. Yum, yum. <laughs> also, I do recognize the pictures, so I, I've heard mm-hmm. at least bits of it. Okay, continue. Not long. I already said that after she graduated. Mm-hmm. Uh, they moved to New Canon, but Kitty, she chose to stay in New York. And one source, a book that I read, it said that... I don't remember that book. I'm sorry. I'll have it later. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It said that she actually, she was set to get married. And she stayed with her grandparents, and she did get married. But pretty soon after, she just realized that that wasn't going to work, and they got annulled. Oh, I mean, at least she didn't stay if it wasn't going to work. Yeah, I mean, that's... I'm and happy what year was this again? 1935. Okay, I'm not sure so- when exactly she got married, but it was sometime around then. Okay, so not as normal as it is today to get a divorce no i wouldn't say so and divorce rates were not like 50 percent or whatever it is today no but there will there'll be more on that later that comes remember that put that pin oh. in your hat i don't uh, have a hat sh- well figure it out put it in your <laughs> swishy jacket okay <laughs> i thought we just said it was crunchy <laughs> the, the crunchy iridescent jacket okay i'll put it in there right in the pocket <laughs> So she got an apartment and she got a job as a secretary at an insurance agency, but she reportedly hated it. It just was not for her. It was mundane. So she took a job as a bartender in the 1950s, which I love because she just completely flips it on his head. She's like, you know what? Let's just go bartender. Make some good tips. Yeah. Was she good? She she was. Yes. She was pretty good. Um. Do you know from personal experience? Yeah, she made me a Tom Collins. Okay. (laughs) I don't know what that is. Sorry. (laughs) She took a job as a bartender. Um, Now, she was there for a couple years, and then she started taking horse racing bets from people in the bar, from the bar patrons. So she was arrested for bookmaking in 1961, and she was fined $50 and fired from the bar. 50 bucks? How much is that today, though? You know, I did not do the conversion. What? You're a sucker for a good conversion, though. Yeah, but I didn't think you'd ask. Uh, But you should assume I'm going to ask what you assume I'm not going to ask. Say that one more time. (laughs) What? I don't know. You should assume I'm going to ask what you think I'm not going to ask. Oh, my God. Okay, I got it the second time. Uh, Today, $50 in the 1940s. Today, it would be about $1,058.13. So that's a pretty hefty fine. Uh, Yeah, it kind of makes me like her even more. Because she just seems, she seems like a fun person, okay? Just a little bookmaking never hurt nobody. Hardy animal. Yeah, bookkeeping. Bookmaking? I don't know. Anyway. So after she got fired from this bar, she moved on to another bar and she started bartending at Ev's 11th Hour. I kind of love that name, but... Isn't that a great name for a bar? She 
very quickly started working as the manager there. So um, that's why I say, like, yeah, she's a pretty good bartender. Or bookkeeper, whatever. All of the above? I bet she'd be a good bookkeeper. Mm-hmm. Um, the bar was in Queens, so Kitty ended up moving closer. She moved to Queens not long after she started managing the place. And she shared an apartment in Kew Gardens with her, or Kew Gardens, I think it said, with her friend, another young woman named Mary Ann Zilanko. Okay. On March 13th of 1964, Kitty left the bar around 2.30 a.m. She climbed into her red Fiat. She had a sports car, too, because she just keeps getting better. And she started driving home. While waiting for a traffic light to change, she was seen by Winston Mosley. That's that fart knocker up there. And he was sitting in a white Chevrolet Corvair in a parking lot. And when he saw her, he started following her. I just want to say he's got some either he's wearing mascara or this picture is just really making his lashes look good. But he's got some good lashes. Give him that, and that's literally all I'll give him. He sucks. That's fine. That's fine. I'm just saying, he does have those those big lashes. He doesn't deserve it. Mm-mm. Uh, she got back to her apartment complex at about 3.15 a.m., and she parked in the parking lot of a railroad station, and it's only about 100 feet from her apartment door. Mosley parked his car at a bus stop, and I actually have a map of where all this happened. You're welcome. Because it, it helps. So you can see there, she just pulls into a parking lot, basically, and he's parked on the corner at the street, a little ways away from her. When she started walking towards her complex, Mosley, armed with a hunting knife, got out of his car and approached her. She ran to the front of the building, uh, where the number one is, but Mosley was hot on her trail. He quickly caught up to her and stabbed Kitty twice in the back. Kitty screamed out, oh my God, he stabbed me, help me. Robert Moser, a neighbor, yelled from his window, let that girl alone. And when he heard this, Mosley took off running. Uh, he got in his car and drove off. And Kitty, she was seriously injured at this point. She slowly made her way towards the back of the building. And from my understanding, the way the apartments were set up, the front where she originally ran, where she originally ran to was shops. Uh, I think like one of them was a bookstore, just random little shops. And then around the back side was their actual... Their tenant uh, access. Right, yeah. I'm guessing she ran to the front because the back was said to be in an alley and kind of dark. So she ran there when he was chasing her first, hoping, you know, hoping exactly what happened would have happened, just mm -hmm. in case. Um, now, Mosley, like I said, he got in his car and drove off when Moser yelled at him. But he came back 10 minutes later wearing a wide-brimmed hat. He was wearing a stocking cap, is what it said, and he took that off and put on a wide brim cap. Because now, I guess you're a completely different person. I don't know. Quick little, hey, you know what? Clark Kent just puts glasses on, so. Yes. I mean, I guess, but he didn't even, <laughs> he didn't even get in the phone booth. He's not even doing it right. Well, how do you know? Maybe he went to a phone booth to switch out hats. Well, I read the court transcripts. Oh, okay. It was horrible. Don't do it. Okay, I won't. He searched the parking lot, the train station, and the apartment complex before he finally found Kitty. She had made her way to a hallway in the back of the building, but a locked door stopped her from being able to get inside. And one source stated that she was about 50 feet from the door to her apartment. 
When he found her, when Mosley found her, she was barely conscious and yelling for help. Mosley stabbed her several more times, once in the neck, restricting her from screaming and only allowing her to moan. He would later claim after hearing doors open at least twice, maybe three times, but never seeing anybody, he, quote, didn't feel that these people were coming down the stairs anyway. So he attempted to sexually assault Kitty. When this attempt failed due to impotence, he instead sexually assaulted her with the knife and stole $49 from her wallet as well as, I know, I got to keep going, as well as some cosmetics. And he did this all as she died before running away again. What? Sorry, Sir. I, ha- I had to power through that. Sir, that's not where that knife belongs. No, no, no. Also, if you really wanted her cosmetics, she's probably not the same shade as you. You might want to find the correct color. Also, I'm pretty sure she would just give them to you. You could yes. ask nicely. She would have done it. Right. But if you're going to steal her stuff, you want to make sure it's going to match, like, get the right lip color. Like, if it's not going to complement your skin tone, what's the point of having it? I really don't know. I, was makeup expensive in the 40s? Are you going to sell it? I feel like it's probably about the same as what it is now. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I feel like, yes. Okay. I think back then they did... They did put it in, like, the fancy, you know, compacts and stuff that were, were expensive, like silver and I don't know. We get plastic and it's still expensive, so. Fair. A close friend and neighbor, 70-year-old Sophia Farrar, she found Kitty not long after the second attack and she stayed with Kitty and screamed for somebody to call the police. The first call to police was said to be at about 3.50 a.m. and they arrived minutes later. Sophia held Kitty in her arms until the ambulance arrived around 4.15. But unfortunately, Kitty would die on the way to the hospital. She was buried on March 16, 1964 in Lakeview Cemetery in New Canaan, Connecticut, near her family. The entire attack lasted about 30 minutes. And when Poor woman screamed for her life for 30 minutes. Yeah. And this is the first attack, too. So she got home at about 3.15. And the police arrived at 3.50. Or, I'm sorry, they called the police at 3.50. So while this is happening, nothing. Hey, but didn't one person, like, lean their head out and say, leave that woman alone? Yes. And And she screamed that she had been stabbed? Yes. Uh, And he didn't um, think to call police? No. He just told the man to stop. I know we like to give these little morsels of advice, but if you guys ever stick your head out of a window and say, leave that woman alone, and she screams back that she's been stabbed, maybe call the police. And maybe I'll also go down and assist her, um, you know, put some pressure on the wounds, stop the blood flow, mm-hmm. you know, the, the basic things that you know to do. Yes. At the very least, call the police, please. Yeah. Yeah. Call the police. Which, that's another thing. Uh, I'll go into that a little more later, too. When police started investigating, they found that a neighbor, Carl Ross, actually witnessed the attack happening. He heard noises and cracked the door to investigate. And it did say, I guess, in some kind of defense for him, that he had been drinking that night. He was intoxicated. 
But he cracked the door and kind of peeked out to see what the noises were. And he saw Kitty laying on the floor trying to speak while Mosley stabbed her. So he shut the door and called a friend to ask what he should do. Okay, again, let's not phone your friend first. Um, let's, let's call the police. Unless well, your friend is the police. Well, his friend told him don't do anything. You've got a bad friend. Get new friends. Absolutely, 100%. Now, credit to Ross, I guess. He would eventually climb out of his window and into a neighbor's apartment to call police when he heard Sophia yelling. I don't know why he did that. I'm just telling you what the, what the book says. He'll call, y'all, we have, we have cell phones now. Just use your cell phone. Yes. Um, now, the police obviously asked him, like, hey, hey, bud, why didn't you call us? And he told them I didn't want to get involved. You can still make an anonymous report, bud. Mm, yes. You can literally say, excuse me, 911, somebody's getting mugged or whatever here, and then hang up. Right. Nowadays, it's even better because if you just call and hang up, they will call you back. Yes. But I did learn. I didn't know this. Um, I did learn that apparently it does take longer if you call from a cell phone because they can't just trace the call like they can to a right. home phone. They have to call the cell phone company and like get permission, you know, where they at. Right. But I they can still call you back. I yes. only know that because there was a time where I accidentally called 911. I oh. think I was driving and I, you know how like on the Androids they have the emergency assist where if you like press this button so many times. Yeah, I have that. How I had my phone sitting, I pressed it, and I realized, like, I heard it start ringing, and I hung up. Not even, I didn't even look, and then I got a call back, and they're like, are you okay? I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I just didn't know I had emergency assist or whatever it's called on my cell phone. That'll be shut off today. Oh, I did that a couple times on the watches when you first get them, Mm -hmm. and it was like the double tap or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. I got that, so. Kitty's roommate, Zelanko, she was the one... To identify the body, she was first questioned at 7 the morning of the murder and interrogated for six hours because police believed her to be a suspect in the murder. Mary Ann told police that she had gone bowling with a friend that night. She got back home at around 11 p.m. and went to sleep. On March 19th, six days after the murder, Mosley was arrested for suspected robbery because he's an idiot. Police were called out to Ozone Park. That's like an area, like a neighborhood. They were called out there by a neighbor who saw Mosley taking a TV out of his neighbor's house. And he goes up to him. This neighbor's name is Raul Cleary. What kind of a fun name is Raul? Like, that's just really fun. I just love how you're like, I love the name Raul. Like Raul. It sounds exotic. It's it, it is. It's a Hispanic name. I think it's Hispanic. I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't I know. just, I, I it. think it's hilarious that you're like, wow. Yeah. You got it. You can't say it. No, you got to say it. Breathy. No breath. Raul. Well, you've got to roll the R too for fun. Oh, Raul. <laughs> <laughs> so Raul Cleary, he confronted Mosley, Mosley and Mosley Claimed to have been a removal worker. I understood this to be like a professional mover. Because Raul goes to another neighbor. 
named Jack Brown. And he asked Jack Brown if the family was moving. And because he didn't know that Raul didn't know that they were. Jack Brown agreed with Raul. He's like, no, they're not moving. They're not going anywhere. He's like, they just moved in last month. Why would they be moving already? Yeah, like the housing market is horrible. It's the 40s, y'all. There are like no houses. They're building them as we speak. Like, I don't like, know what the 40s are. It's not are like. happening. No. So these two badasses, I want neighbors like this, okay? Raul went and called the police while Jack, he, um, he disabled Mosley's car so he couldn't go anywhere. And Mosley did try to run, but he was on foot. So the police got him and picked him up. And when they got back to the house, there was a TV in his car. So he was arrested on attempted or suspicion of robbery, suspected robbery. One of the investigators noticed the vehicle. And he mentioned it to the cops that were interrogating Mosley because it was the same vehicle that had been seen at the Kitty Genovese assault and murder just a couple days beforehand. So the cops are talking to him. And during the interrogation, because this guy's just talking, just just telling them whatever they want to know. Like, yeah, I, I robbed this place. I've actually committed about 30 to 40 burglaries. And so they were like, okay, okay, yeah. So why did you kill Kitty Genovese? Well, did they and, just slide that in there? Yeah, they basically they said that they just gave it a shot because he it was obvious that he was willing to talk to him about it. So Mosley told him, I wanted to kill a woman. I mean, honesty is the best policy. I mean, you're not going anywhere. Right, you just admit 30 to 40 burglaries. Oh, he admits to a lot more. He confesses during the interrogation, which obviously went on a lot longer than they had planned. He confessed to killing two other women, as well as raping one woman, attempting to rape another, and between 30 to 40 burglaries. Mm. Sir, we appreciate your honesty. We don't appreciate your bullshit, though. Yeah. Um, go to hell. So, the other two women, one of them was Annie Mae Johnson, and I could not find a picture of her. I tried, but she was a 24-year-old housewife and mother that lived in South Ozone Park. She was murdered in her home on February 29th, 1964. And the police originally didn't believe him when he said that he had killed her. Because when they asked him how... He insisted that he shot her six times with a rifle before sexually assaulting her and then setting her house on fire. Her house had been set on fire, um, but the medical examiner, they ruled the death due to being stabbed multiple times with an ice pick. Now, Mosley was adamant. He's like, no, she wasn't stabbed. I killed her. And he went on to tell them that he shot her twice in the stomach and four times in the back. Just like really, he told them it was with a 22 rifle. So finally, the police are like, okay, let's exhume this body. And they did it to prove him wrong. Did However, he prove them wrong? Yes. Yes, he did. When they exhumed the body, it was buried in a different city than she had died in. He, I think it was actually a different state. So that state ended up doing the new examination the new uh medical exam and they 
did find basically exactly what he said, two bullet wounds in her stomach, four in her back, and they removed four bullets from her body. Wait. Who did the initial medical exam? Um, it was Jamaica. Were they, were they new? Was no. it the first day on the job? It was not. I believe it said that they had uh, been on the job for about 10 years. However, it did launch a really big investigation to where they exhumed a bunch of bodies that had died in suspicious ways and examined them at different, uh, completely different counties, completely different medical examiners. He, um, he needs to go back to school. There are some new things that he needs to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where she, whoever the medical examiner examiner was, um, I couldn't find you, a name, which was probably wise because I would just talk them. Thinking if you cannot find the bo- the bullets in the body, even though you're examining the body, seems I mean, a little iffy. Kind of, yeah. Now, again, to their credit, they did find the bullets with an X-ray. Uh, but also, I don't, I could not find what kind of shape this body was in at this point either. But either I still way, feel like there's something they had to have seen. Anyway, I, I, I also think about like all the other victims out there that whether they were um, investigated further, like re-exhumed or whatever. You have all these people who might have like an unsolved crime because mm-hmm. that medical examiner did not do their due diligence. Yeah. And I guess I do have to take into account, too, I didn't think about this until just now, he did burn the house and burn the body. I don't know what kind of damage had been done to it. You know, I'm not a medical examiner. That could be difficult. But also, like, please do better. Please. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm not a professional, but I yeah. would think that, that would, that's still something they would have been able to find at that time. Mm-hmm. Initially. I mean, I agree. Like, they were investigated for a reason. They're, I would assume they're not just going to go exhuming all these bodies over one mistake. Right. Well, then, maybe what it was is they're like, listen, we're just going to put in, like, um, like, you know, the jars where it's like, pull a, pull a popsicle stick out and that's what you're doing for your chores or whatever. Maybe that's what they were doing was, all right, you died of ice pick. And just put it back <laughs> and just shuffled it up. I thought you were going to say tuberculosis, and I was going to be like, you know, in a few months, that's not going to be funny anymore. <laughs> nope, ice pick. <laughs> I was not taking a shot at your tuberculosis. Thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> the other woman um, was Barbara, Barbara Pralick. Don't look she at me was, like that. I don't know. She was 15 years old. <gasps> And she was murdered in her own bed in Springfield Gardens on July 20th, 1963. Wait. 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 Yes. Wait. Her own bed? Her own bed. Was she home alone? No. Wait. Wait. It was the middle of the night and her parents were there. Did and she another... not get a chance to scream? Um, eventually. She died later. Uh, I believe she died in the hospital. And um, 
Okay, so police had already arrested and charged 18-year-old high school dropout Alvin Mitchell with the Kralik murder. The two, uh, they knew each other. Um, Mitchell later told a harrowing story of being interrogated by police seven times for a total of almost 50 hours. He was transported between police stations to prevent his parents from finding him. He was threatened. He was abused. He was starved, sleep deprived, and coached. So finally, one night after an interrogation that lasted almost 13 hours at one in the morning, Mitchell signed a written confession that he tried to recant. I think it was like the day after. And they were like, no, you confess. And on in his first trial, his defense team brought Mosley to testify. And Mosley described this attack in detail. Mosley, after being granted immunity for the crime, he told the court that it was him who entered the house at 3 a.m. He said he crept up the stairs and into Barbara's room before stabbing her multiple times with a small serrated steak knife before fleeing when she moaned and woke her parents up. The police had found the knife down the block the next day, but they never told the media that detail. So that would have been something that only the killer knew. And because of this, the trial resulted in a hung jury. Why wouldn't the charges be, just be dropped? I have no idea. I don't know how a jury can hang on that. Like, he told you in excruciating, specific, private details. How can y'all not just decide that this man is not guilty? I don't. Right. Maybe he just, maybe that prosecutor was just something else. Ugh. And they, there was a lot of sketchiness going on in that case. There was a lot of confessions, uh, witness testimony from people that were pressured, people that were coached. It was not, a, it was the 40s, okay? Not great police work. I'll leave it at that. Not the for second, that case. Right, yeah. The second trial um, that Mitchell got, it included a new witness for the prosecution while Mosley returned for defense uh, from prison. Spoiler alert, he goes to prison. Um, this time when he took the stand, he told the court, I didn't do it and I don't plan on going, and I don't plan to go into any explanation why. Wait, so now he's saying he didn't do it? But he yes. just said he did? Yes. The first trial, he told them all the details and everything. And in the second trial for this man, he told them, I didn't do it. And I don't plan to go into any explanation. This time, Mitchell was convicted of manslaughter and served 12 years and eight months in prison. And he was denied parole because he didn't express remorse for the murder. What? Yeah. That part was, it, it made me really angry. Winston Mosley, on the other hand, was charged with the murder of Kitty Genovese. Um, police, they only charged, well, the prosecutor only charged him with the one because the other crimes, they already had him. Uh, they already had Alvin Mitchell for it. He had already confessed and the media was kind of going crazy. Basically, they didn't, they didn't want to screw it up. So they only went for the one murder. I hate that the other women didn't get their justice, but also I, I guess I kind of see that. Because if you screw it up, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. His trial oh. began 
Hypothetically, sorry, couldn't they try him separately for all of them? I don't know. Well, not the like- one, because he got immunity for killing her when he said that, Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't understand how that worked when the second time he was like, nope, I didn't do it. I don't know how that worked. I'm not a lawyer. Lawyers help. Winston Mosley's trial began June 8th of 1964. He pleaded not guilty, but soon changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Mosley took the stand and described the events that took place on the night of each murder, as well as multiple burglaries and rapes. I read that they did this to prove his insanity. They basically told him to get up on the stand and talk about whatever crime you did. I'm not really sure who developed that strategy, but it didn't work. Oh, good. Yeah. The jury deliberated for seven hours before delivering a guilty verdict on June 11th. On June 15th, he was sentenced to death for the murder of Jenny, Kitty Genovese. However, on June 1st of 1967, uh, three, two years later, the New York Court of Appeals found that Mosley should have been allowed to argue that he was legally sane but medically insane when he was sentenced because two psychiatrists were barred from testifying on his behalf in his trial. So they still, they said like, you're still guilty as shit, but they took him off death row and moved him to life in prison with parole. Oh, he better not have gotten parole. He absolutely did not. He was denied like 15 times. Like spoiler alert, he went, he continued being a shithead. Okay, he broke out of prison at one point and raped a woman and took a bunch of other people hostage. Yes, he, uh, I believe he got out when he beat the tar out of a prison guard and stole his weapons. Um, he was, Er. he took, he was an active member in prison riots. Like, he sucked, okay? He's a shitty human being. Damn, how did he get blessed with lashes like that? See what I mean? I told you he Damn. doesn't deserve them. Piece of Ugh. I don't like A Time re- magazine read an article on the attack. Uh, this is going back to G- Kitty Genevieve's attack. And they started this by saying, for more than half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman in three, second, three separate attacks in Kew Gardens. This is not right at all. It's very, very. I was going to say, I only remember the two attacks. Yeah. And there was not 38 witnesses at all. But also there may be 38 sets of eyes. Yes. I don't even know if that's correct. No, actually, like you pretty much hit the nail on the head. This, this article came from time. First of all, it didn't even run until like 10 days after everything happened because it was really unreported in the news. And you'll, I keep, I know I keep pushing it off, but we'll get into that. It was really unreported on. And basically, this editor meets with the chief of police, and the chief of police says something about like, You know, this was the crime of the century. This was a doozy. And they're talking about it at lunch. And he makes this, you know, guesstimation of like, yeah, like there was like 38 witnesses. Nobody called the cops. 
well, this newspaper guy was just like, all oh, this is factual. Run it. Print it. Done. Yes. This now that'll sell. Pay, extra, extra. Read all about it. 38 witnesses, bitches. Nobody said shit. Yes. Um, they did come back. Time magazine came back a couple years later and was like, hey, we kind of oopsed on this. So I'll give them credit for that. A couple years but, later, though. Yeah, like a good couple years. Like last year, they oopsed on it, right? They're like, oh, yeah, this was a big oops on our part. I don't remember the exact year, uh, but it was like at least 10, maybe 40. That's not a couple years later. <laughs> that's a, that's decades later. I'm trying to give them credit for at least correcting their BS. They could have corrected it a couple years later. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but in that article that they ran, there was never 38 witnesses. Police reports did include multiple reports from different family members or different people that lived in the same house or apartment. So they think that might be why it got stretched. Like you said, there were two attacks. There weren't three attacks. And a lot of people believed it to be like a lover's quarrel. And that's why when originally she was heard on at the first attack in the front of the building, that's why no one really called the cops because... People that might have been watching from their windows, they saw him run off and they saw her leave and then they didn't hear any more screams. They didn't see any more fighting. So I, that's what they said. They were like, we, didn't, we just thought it was two, a man and a woman fighting. Yeah, but she just yelled that she was stabbed. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that part either. Like she's not being dramatic. I just feel like, you know, overreact. Like, at the least, call for a welfare check. At the very least. Maybe just take your dog out on a quick little walk. Yeah. Just check out. Go be that nosy neighbor. Look for blood. Make sure there's nothing there. And if you happen to walk by the front and you're like, oh, that's definitely blood. She was definitely stabbed. Maybe try to find her. Please. Listen, listen we can talk about this all day of what you should do. Yeah. All of the current generations listening, get your shit together. Learn from the past, please. Please. Don't repeat the past. Um, some good did come from the tragedy. Communities organized neighborhood watch patrols. In New York City, emergency calls were moved to a simpler system in 1964. Couple, uh, one year later, I believe. Because at the time, 911 wasn't a thing. So you had to actually dial, you had to find the number, call the police, or you had to, you know, hit zero. The lady on the switchboard had to connect you. It wasn't just 911. So this did lead to the simpler system in New York in 1964, and it eventually led to the unified 911 system being established in 1968. It also led to the bystander effect or the Kitty Genovese syndrome being studied by psychologists, which is basically where the more witnesses that see something, the less people are to actually report it because everybody's like, oh, well, those other three people saw it. One of them are probably going to call. I'm not going to call. Wait, 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 wait. But they don't know that there's that many other people that saw it in this one. No, but they did say, um, there was mention, I believe it was Mosley mentioned, that multiple lights came on in windows and stuff like that during the first attack. 
And he said that he heard two to three doors being opened and closed when he was attacking her in the hallway. So I guess other people are hearing that too. I'm not really sure. I've never been the type of person that's like, someone else is going to call. And just call y'all. Right. Just call. Right. Just call y'all. Just call y'all. I'm sorry. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> now, Mosley did die in prison March 28th Good. of 2016 at the age of 81 after serving 52 years. And then the last little thing I wanted to add in here, I wanted to add in that during the 20th century, I believe it was 2004, but the sources varied, Mary Ann Zelanko, she finally spoke out about her side of the story. In numerous heart-wrenching interviews, she goes on to tell the world that she and Kitty were in a relationship. They weren't friends. She described Kitty as being the love of her life, and she told their story of meeting in March at 1963 at a lesbian car called a lesbian bar called Swing Rendezvous. And she said they were together a year to the day of Katie's of Kitty's death. Oh. That yes, they had actually lived together for a year. Oh. She said that as she was awoken and led out of their apartment, and this isn't. 2004 this murder happened in the 60s and in the interview she's still cracking like her voice is bright it was it's oh my god it really did hurt my heart she said that as the police led her out of the building she was led directly past the scene of the crime she spoke of seeing the yellow tape and the chalk outline of where her body had been she also claimed that police not only suspected her of katie's death but that the investigation centered on their relationship and they allegedly asked a lot of questions that were pretty out of line and just, it felt like, like, you don't have to go there. You know what I mean? You don't have you know, to ask about that. Like, you don't yes. need to know anything about that to solve this crime. Right. And it was the 60s and that was like a big no-no, but like, that has nothing to stop. You don't need to know about their sex life. Right. Highly, highly inappropriate. and. Finally, in a documentary called The Witness about Kitty's brother, Bill Genovese, searching for answers about his sister's death, he they state in that documentary that most of Kitty's happiness is attributed to her home life with Marianne. Oh, we're babies. Marianne. Mm -hmm. That's the story of Kitty, Kitty Genevieve, as well as Barbara and Annie May. What breaks my heart with, I already forgot her name. What was her girlfriend's name? Marianne Zalongo. Marianne. She's only coming out about it in like 2004 area time frame. Yeah. Is she not comfortable she, still? Oh. She said they were both like very closeted to the point where if they caught themselves like holding hands or even looking at each other lovingly in public, they would like have to shut it down. Mm hmm. Which is, even but, like, I hate that. Yeah, like nowadays, like you do, you do whatever you want to do. I it d doesn't affect me. Like your happiness only affects you, and I don't have a say in it, and I'm fine with that. Like yeah. I'm happy, you're happy. Oh, but the fact that it took her so long to be like, oh yeah, we were lovers. Mm -hmm. Oh, so sad. And the fact too that they were lovers, and they're like they're suspecting her in this murder. Like I can't. 
And to have I mean, to see it, to be led right past where it happened. And I can't imagine oh, this woman's trauma. I can kind of see the police a little bit, not a lot. Mm-hmm. I can kind of see their perspective, though, because she was sexually assaulted with a knife instead yeah. of, you know, actually with. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I can kind of see, like, if it was in the police's eyes, if they're trying to build a case and a motive, what happened that did kitty go and like cheat or something and that just triggered mary ann i can see that to an extent i actually did not even think of that and i appreciate that that aspect uh that i don't uh-huh. know the devil's advocate of it that you're doing i didn't yeah. even think of that that's a really good point yeah because that's i mean i can see uh, to an extent to an extent i can see the police being like you know what makes sense kitty maybe she's decided that they're she's not lesbian and she's she's had yeah. her her uh, awakening or her whatever, her come to mm-hmm. with Jesus. And that was why the marriage was annulled as well, because she discovered. Yeah. She, yeah. yeah I, she I, I caught on to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, babies. Oh, it's so sad. Okay. Well, I got something <laughs> pretty fucked up today. Damn it. Okay. It's, it's not like, <laughs> it's not gory like yours, but it's. Uh, it's yeah okay what the hell is that <laughs> is that a jaw no okay <laughs> oh my hell hold on i got to <laughs> pull my notes up no it's not a jaw oh my oh hell god okay unless i put the wrong picture in oh no you're okay so we're just gonna jump in in 1870, a chest was created, and as time went on, the family that owned the chest would give a warning to their children. And that warning was, don't ever open the drawers on this chest. It's only for people who have died. Did they open the drawers? What? They opened the drawers, didn't they? Who opened it? Was it the youngest? All of them did. Hold on, we're going to get into it. So today we're going to talk about the cursed chest or the conjure chest. I'm sorry, it's Ooh. the conjure chest. I've never heard of this. I'm ready. I did get this from. My new book, Cursed Objects. <laughs> so, again, this chest was created in about the 1870s. It was created for the unborn son of a man named Jeremiah Graham. Now, when you look into this, it does give you two conflicting names. It says this man was either Jeremiah Graham or jo- uh, Jacob Cooley. This is contested by a, a descendant of the bloodline of the family and she's like his name was jeremiah graham like where the hell they got jacob cooley i don't know but it's jeremiah graham so for the purpose of my story since a family member within this whole thing is saying it's jeremiah graham i'm going with that okay so jeremiah graham was a wealthy slave owner um it was the 1870s you know whatever um not whatever horrible but that was the time so He commissions to have this chest created by one of his enslaved men. And this man's name was Remus. I don't know why I rolled my R. It was Remus. There is a different name that is posted for him. Again, I'm going off of what the family member or the descendant says his name was. And so Jeremiah gets Remus to complete this chest. Well, when Remus completes the chest, and I want want to know your input on this chest. What do you think? Like, there's pictures in there. I mean, like, it looks like a 
pretty good job. I mean, she there's did like, a pretty dang good job. Yeah, it's got like character. It's not just a box. The top is bigger than the bottom. Is that some like etching and engraving or whatever you do with furniture? I don't know. Yeah. It's pretty. To me, it looks pretty good. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a furniture connoisseur. Right. But for Jeremiah Graham, he was very unhappy. He was very dissatisfied with the chest. He would go on to beat Ramus to death. Okay. Well, as if I didn't already like him. Wait. No, as if I didn't already dislike him. What the hell is You disliked him. Yes. Yes, he was so unhappy with the chest that he does go on to beat Ramus to death. And this is considered to be one of the first victims of the chest. Now he kept the chest. Yes. Um, The other enslaved people were so enraged by Ramus's death that they gathered around the chest and they basically put a curse on it. Hell yeah. They're like, you want to play dirty? Let's play dirty. I love it. So they completed what they call a group conjure on the chest, and this started the family curse, or the uh, the curse on the chest. And what they did is they sprinkled dry bla- owl blood inside of the drawers and did their incantations or whatever they needed to. I didn't look that deep. I didn't want to know how to curse a chest. Um, and again, it, that's where it started. The chest was moved into the soon-to-be baby's nursery, and... From there, people believe that the chest would go on to be responsible for the deaths or injuries of 17 additional people. So, Damn. 18 including Ramus. They meant business. They meant business, yes. Um, <clears throat> the first victim, like I said, the chest was moved into the baby's nursery. And the first victim is the baby. Jeremiah, Jeremiah's, Jeremiah Graham's child died in infancy. And it's presumed that they were using this chest to keep his clothes. And so he is the first of the victims aside from Remus. So for, we're not counting Remus as one. We're counting Jeremiah as one. Not Jeremiah. Jeremiah's son is one. That leads us to victim number two already, which is Jeremiah Graham's nephew. He, Jeremiah had a twin brother named Jonathan. Jonathan's son had used this chest to put his clothes in it. And either just before his 21st birthday or on his 21st birthday, he was killed. His body servant stabbed him to death. His what? Body servant? I don't know what that means. I didn't Google it. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's like a personal personal servant that's like there for Yeah, whatever. for all the, yeah, all your, I guess, intimate needs. Like, yeah. Which... Maybe he was a shithead. I don't know. I don't know, but he he was 21. He was stabbed to death. He's victim number two. Aww. And after this, the chest is put in the attic of family member Amanda Winchell Graham. She is actually the sister-in-law. And the reason I like to put the women's names in this is because the history of this is an oral history, but it's mostly told by the women in the family and not necessarily the men. So, okay, you know. Um, so after the chest is put in the attic, it is with Amanda Winchell, Winchell Graham, the sister-in-law to Jeremiah. Her husband is Moses Graham. He gets put in their attic, it hangs out, and eventually Amanda Winchell Graham, she arranges for an immigrant couple, couple from Ireland to live on land that belonged to them. So she's like, all right, well, 
we've got this land, this newlywed immigrant couple needs a place to stay. And so we'll let them live on this farmland that we have. And I mean, ultimately, this new couple was just grateful for a place to live. They were newlyweds and their names were John Ryan and Catherine Winchell Ryan. So there was a relation there as well. That makes sense. Okay. So John and Catherine, they go on to put their clothes in this chest as well. That leads to victim number three, and that is John Ryan himself. He actually had plans to go out into New Orleans to find work. Farm life was really difficult for him and Catherine. They were really, really poor. Catherine was ill. But before John could make it out to New Orleans, he was killed in a tragic accident. Couldn't find what the accident was. I just know he there was some sort of an accident. This chest just really does not want to hold your laundry. No. No, not clean, dirty. It doesn't care, okay? Um, and that also leads us to victim number four, which is Catherine Ryan. Like I said, she had fallen ill and she would go on to lose her life to that illness as well. Not long after her husband, John, passed away. And as time goes on, the chest gets shuffled around and it ends up with Eliza Ryan and John David Gregory. So just kind of moving around from family member to family member. And... Eliza Ryan and John David Gregory had a little girl named Louise who becomes the fifth victim of the chest. She died around the age of 10 years old. She had actually suffered from a spinal disease and was in constant pain, but she did put her clothing in the chest as well. So she is attributed as a victim. The family at this time, they're, I mean, they've heard a little bit of the stories like, okay, it's cursed. (laughs) So scary, you know. But they don't make the connection to the chest uh, contributing to the death of their daughter. Now, their only son, Ernest Gregory, he would go on to name a woman named Stella Stonecipher. Stonecipher? And Stella would go on to put her wedding dress in this chest. And she does become victim number six. Within two years of being married, Stella would pass away. And it did not clarify if she passed away from natural causes or from an accident. Um, It did mention that within those two years, she had given birth to their first son. So I wonder if it had something to do with that. But I I didn't get clarity there. I'm sorry. Where did you say this this was? Pennsylvania? Kentucky. So not. This is in Kentucky. Kentucky. (laughs) I don't think I've said where this was. It's in Kentucky, guys. This is mostly Kentucky. Okay. Thank you. She she passes away. And this is sometime between the years of 1895 and 1897. So they were wed in 1895 and she passed away sometime after that. And at this time, when she passed away, the family already had another relative, Mabel Louise Whitehead, living with them. Because why not have family hang out, whatever? I mean, yeah, sure. If you can, you do it. But Mabel would go on to marry Wilbur Harlan in 1897. In 1901, Mabel gives birth to their first child, Chester, and baby Chester becomes the seventh victim to this chest. Oh, my God. They were putting the baby's clothes in the chest, and he died at just two weeks old. Okay, why are you going to keep taking the babies? Like, I I I don't know. It's bad enough that you're taking the people, but the babies? Come on, man. They ain't even done anything. Uh, They haven't even had time to be shitty people. 
I I can't tell you. They're, I'm not even done with the babies. Um, oh, okay. So the grieving family, they go on to move the furniture around. And Wilbur Harlan, the dad of little baby Chester, he finds a new home for his clothes. And that is in that chest. Um, and Wilbur becomes the eighth victim. He would die in 1905 after he began using the chest. So just a, four years later. Now, officially at this point, the, the chest is still owned by John David Gregory and Eliza Ryan Gregory. So it's in their home. It, like, it's just different family members living with them and stuff. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that we were still in that. Okay. Yeah. Just by the way, there's so many names in this. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so John David Gregory, he would pass in 1908 and his death is unrelated to the chest but he does pass away eliza just lost the love of her life she's having a real rough go at it she's lost a daughter a family member all of that um now john david gregory's sister lucy she i don't know if she was visiting or living there i just know that she went ahead and she was knitting a pair of gloves and scarf for her son emmett and this was meant to be a Christmas gift for Emmett. So she places the gloves and scarf in the chest, presumably to hide them. Emmett at the time was working for the railroad. One evening on December, in December of 1909, Emmett got off of the train and fell 30 feet through a trestle. And he became God. victim for a night. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. 30 feet? 30 feet. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, John and Eliza's daughter, Nellie Gregory, who had already married Fred Fraze in August of 1905. And just as a little throw out, I love the name Nellie. Love it. Nellie? Nellie. N-E-L-L-I-E. Nellie. I do think that is a pretty name. I think it's so cute. Okay. Um, so... Nellie, again, she was married, got married in 1905. Before the wedding, she had placed the wedding clothes in the chest. And Fred would go on to actually desert Nellie, leaving her very emotionally distraught. Now, this might not be a death or an injury, but it is, Nellie is considered the 10th victim of the chest. She had her life destroyed. Her husband left her. Kind of shitty thing to do, but, you know, whatever. Even worse, though, back in those times, like. Mm Mm-hmm. That was what year? Uh, 1905. So well before women's oh, rights. It was after 1905. It was somewhere between 1905 and 1915. They so got married in 1905. So she's a spinster and it's his fault now. Yeah, basically. Damn. Okay. <clears throat> well, again, as I stated, Eliza's just going through the ringer on this. She's lost family. Her daughter's been abandoned. And she goes on to kind of do some rearranging. And she rearranges all this different furniture and she moves the chest into her own room. Oh no. And Eliza would take her own life in April of 1915 and she becomes the 11th victim of the chest. And we still have a lot to go. Too many to go. Seven? Yeah. Okay. No, six. Six? That was 11. I already said the first one. Yeah, six more to go. Okay, um, where was I? I lost my place. I don't know. Oh, okay. So, 
Eliza takes her own life, and now the chest is homeless. So what do we what do we do with a homeless cursed chest? Donate it. Not yet. Uh, okay. Yet? <laughs> oh god. Okay. <laughs> Estate no, we, sale. We give it to our granddaughter, Virginia Carey Hudson Cleveland, and her husband. Wait, why do I love her? What's her name? <laughs> Virginia Carey Hudson Cleveland. I love people with four names. They are immediately oh so gosh. chic. Oh, you're going to love her even more because I, I do. Oh, God, uh, yeah. Um, so the chest is moved into the Cleveland's home. And as you do with any chest, you put clothes in it for your first child, right? She's going to have a baby. She's pregnant. <clears throat> her baby would be born prematurely and die the same day in 1915. And that becomes the victim. I got to get rid of her chest. Uh, is it cursed? Is it an <laughs> antique? Or is it, if it's from Ikea, you're safe. I don't know where it's from. It was James's. and You I better ask it. him if it's an antique. Oh, God. Okay. Or maybe we just, I just tell you how to break the spell. Look, the break way the James deals with my antiques, the way he moves them from place to place, there's no way that's an antique because it would I, not be standing. So it's probably from Ikea. Okay, cool. So you're probably good. So, <laughs> where was I? So she loses her first baby. Again, born prematurely, dies that same day. They had been placing the baby's clothing into the chest because, you know, you prepare to have a baby. The chest, uh, sorry. The Clevelands would go on to have two daughters and a son, at least the three kids that I'm aware of. And they actually named their second daughter Anne Carrie. And Anne places her clothing in the chest. She does become victim 13. She is struck with polio in 1929. She did survive. Okay. However, she was afflicted with symptoms from the polio the rest of her life. The Cleveland's oldest daughter. This is where you're going to fall even more in love with Virginia Carrie Hudson Cleveland. The Cleveland's oldest daughter, they named her Virginia Hudson Cleveland. I'm loving, loving this. So wait, is it they? Mom's name is Virginia. Daughter's name is Virginia. I, she is a queen. I just she know it. She is. I love her. You still are going to fall more in love with her even more. Awesome. Okay. Um, where was I? So really like the women in this family and also her her second daughter her middle name is carrie so she still has a piece of her on her second daughter too this woman knows her worth I'm she's she does she's like not just one but two children will be named after me mm-hmm. and her husband only, was like no <laughs> the only thing better is if she would have named her son something i don't know hudson yes does that me the third it she didn't um I'm assuming by that time she let her husband choose the son's name. But anyway, big mistake. Mistake there. Lost opportunity. <laughs> um, so we're going to call the little Virginia baby Virginia. So, uh, so that we can keep track of who's who. Okay. So baby Virginia goes on to marry Wilbur Brisser. And she did place her wedding clothes in the chest. The couple got married in 1943, and in December of 1944, her husband Wilbur is rushed to the emergency room for an appendectomy. 
Oh. He does become the 14th victim, and he passes away on December 9th, 1944, due to an overdose of ether. Oh my god, so not even his appendix. Not even his appendix. Well, I, I'm assuming he was getting the ether okay, from yeah. the appendix. So yes. Oh my god. Oh. Yes. So it just gets worse and worse every single time. The Cleveland's neighbor, not long after, they have a they have a neighbor, Herbert H. Sonny Moore. He goes by Sonny. He was like, hey, can I put my hunting clothes in this chest? Like, you guys aren't using it. Can I use it? Go <laughs> home, like, Herbert. Sonny. <laughs> they're like, yeah, sure. Put your hunting stuff in here. No biggie. Forties <laughs> was a time. Huh? Right? What? On April 5th, 1946, Herbert Sonny Moore would be shot and killed in an accident in his home. Making him the 15th victim. He was shot in his own home? Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to tell me he was shot in a hunting accident. There were some reports that said it was a hunting accident, but most of them said it was in his home due to oh, an accident not, with his hunting rifle. Were you not wearing your reflective vest in your own house? What? <laughs> I don't know. I honest, honestly don't know. Oh, God. I'm sorry, Sonny. I'm sorry I talk shit about you. Yeah. Now, the Cleveland son, Richard, he goes on to put his clothing in the chest as well. No. And he does become the 16th victim, and he is stabbed through the hand at school less than a week after he starts using the chest. Okay. What's happening at this school? I don't know. Oh, my God. I have no idea. Well, let's just say Virginia Cleveland, Mother Virginia over here, she's had enough of this chess bullshit. She's like, this is enough. I am done. We're not playing this game anymore. Grandma was correct. You're cursed. Okay. So she turns to a trusted maid. And she asks this maid, her her name is Sally. And Sally had worked for the family most of her life. So you know, like the movie, The, the Help, where they've got like the nannies that do all the housework. That's what Sally was. Sally was, she tended the children. She did all the housework. She was just one of, she was a very hardworking woman, right? Right. Um, but she was well-loved by the family. Like, the family treated her really well. They loved her. She was, she was basically a part of the family. And so Virginia's like, hey, Sally, do you know how to break a conjure or a curse? And Sally's like, oh, hell yeah, I know. Let's do this. Okay. <laughs> so... Sally, I guess, was a hoodoo expert. And so, who knew? Um, But she started saying, okay, so these are some of the things you need. So you need to have a dead owl brought by a good friend. However, you cannot ask that friend to bring you an owl. They just have to do it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Easy. Easy peasy, right? Well, it did turn out to be easy peasy. Because... Virginia's like, oh, yeah, I think we've already got one in the house, like a taxidermied owl. Like someone brought one over, like a good friend. <laughs> what? They just had this taxidermied owl. She's like, cool, done. What's next? Do you get blood from taxidermied animals? Well, they don't need blood. They what just they need, need, they just need, oh. they just need a dead owl brought by a good friend. I'm sorry. Okay. They used the blood, the dried blood to curse it. Yes. The dried blood was used to curse it. So they just need the rest of the owl to uncurse it. I I guess so. Okay. 
They also needed a live leaf from a willow tree, again, planted by a good friend. Uh Uh-huh. Well, luck would have it that a good friend and neighbor of theirs had planted a willow tree a couple years back. No, Sally is 100% trolling them. I don't believe that Sally is trolling them. (laughs) So Virginia and Sally go over to the neighbor's house and they just start picking these leaves because they needed one leaf per victim. And they knew of 16 at the time. That's all we know about is the 16. So they start picking 16 leaves off. And from what I could tell, they didn't exactly ask permission. Like there's a letter that detailed all of this. And the way the letter read is that like the neighbor was just like, are you really clipping leaves off of my fucking tree right now? It's for our own good, okay? <laughs> you can give me a one tree limb for the sake of my family. Calm down, Carl. I just need 16 leaves, okay? I don't yes. even need the full limb. Robert, Jeremiah, whatever your name is. I don't know the neighbor's name, but... <laughs> Jeremiah is long gone at this point. <laughs> So they get the leaves and now with all of the ingredients they need, what they need to do is add the leaves to some water in a pot. They need to grab the owl, the taxidermied owl, and they need to boil the leaves in the water from sunup to sundown with the owl in a place where it can watch. Okay. Okay. So sunup to sundown. That's not too terrible, right? Like wake up before the sun, start boiling, stop boiling at the end, right? Okay. And then this concoction they have to put in a jar and bury it under a flowering bush and the handle of the jar needed to face east there was significance behind that i don't remember what it was so actually no it's um sunrises in the east right i was gonna Um, ask yeah it has to do with light and curses and darkness don't like light so anyways um then if the curse was broken if it worked they would know because when the leaves on the flowering bush dropped, either Sally or Virginia would lose their lives. That, you, you know what? You got to sacrifice one person to save what? the rest, okay? But do you get a choice? Like, Sally's really getting the shit into the stick here. Sally did not tell Virginia about that little tidbit until after they completed all the steps. Sally knows what she's doing. <laughs> Sally, Sally sure did. Um, So, where am I? I keep losing my spot. I'm so sorry. One of them's going to die. Oh, yeah. Well, in September that same year, Sally passes away, making her the final victim to the chest. Uh, From what I found is it was an unexpected heart attack. At least it was quick, I guess. (sighs) Sally deserved better. Sally, she's just, damn, Sally. And it hasn't taken anybody since? Not anybody since. But that there might be a reason behind that. So the Cleveland kids grew up knowing that there were certain things you could and could not do with the chest. And the biggest rule was do not remove the feathers from the drawer. Don't touch the feathers. So that's what you saw. It's not not a jaw. They're feathers. <laughs> that, I thought that was a mandible. <laughs> no, it's a, they're that, feathers. From what? what? From an know? owl. From the owl? An owl. I don't think it's oh. the owl, but. Man, where are these people getting all these owls? I guess Kentucky just has a lot of them swooping around, okay? Um, 
1976, Virginia Carrie Hudson, Maine. So this is the baby Hudson. She's now married. She goes on to donate the chest to the Kentucky Historical Society. The details that I just described above, many of these were found in a letter left from Virginia Cleveland or Mama Mama Virginia to her daughter, baby Virginia. So mom wrote daughter a letter with all of these details. And I did read the letter. And she just tells them, like, all the stories, the victims. She talks about, this is how I broke the curse. This is how we lost Sally. All of this information. And to this day, the owl feathers still lay there to ward off any curses that might linger or anything like that. The chest was shown on an episode of, you. would you like to guess what it was shown on? With um, your favorite person. Oh, uh, God. What's his gene? Um, Zach Baggins. Zach, yes. Yes. It was shown on an episode of Deadly Possessions, season one, episode two, if you want to go watch it. Uh, that was aired in 2015. And they did bring on a descendant of the family. And this is Beverly Maine Keensel. And they were able, with Beverly there, they were able to capture EVP spikes, some odd images on their spectral camera. Um, Kinsley or Keensel, Beverly, she basically said, like, why her mother never got rid of the chest. Uh, And this is a quote. I don't think she would turn it loose. I mean, imagine putting it out on the curb, knowing that someone might put items in it and then die. She felt that it needed to be preserved, but to be kept away from innocent people in a place that would make it very clear it wasn't to be used. And that's why it was donated to the Kentucky Historical Society. Now, granddaughter... Um... Granddaughter, not granddaughter. So Virginia Cleveland, this is, oh, no. What the hell am I doing here? Oh, so Beverly, the one that was on the show with Zach Baggins, she actually goes on. She does her own research. From what I could find, she was, like, she had a PhD. She was a professor. A very smart woman. Like, she was, oh. like, she's not one of those people that's like, oh, yeah, I just did this for the fame. She was like. I went through all of this ancestry. I was able to pinpoint that this person, this person, this person, all of that. Like she was able to basically go back through her ancestry and validate some of these deaths and claims. So she went through and said, yep, this person died of this and this person died. And it correlates to the story um, that was in her mother's handwriting to the historical society talking about the curse. She goes on to write a book. That's called The Conjured Chest, A Cursed Family in Old Kentucky. I did read this one. Oh. It was, like I said, she was pretty thorough. Like, this family, I was able to validate this. Now, it could be this or this, but I believe based off of XYZ, it was this. So on and so forth. Like, she she very much, like, it was very, very much about her family bloodlines and how she can basically prove that it was cursed. Um. Again, she she was the one that was on the episode of Deadly Possessions. And she did see the chest. She did not enjoy it, but she did see it and helped investigate it. And then also the chest, the tales in the chest are also documented in a book called Flap Doodle, Trust and Obey that was written by Virginia Carrie Hudson Cleveland, Mama Virginia. Flap Doodle, <laughs> Trust and Obey. I couldn't find the book. I, at least I, I can find it ebook. I cannot love this woman anymore. I know. So 
to this day, from what I could find, it stands in the Kentucky Historical Museum or with the Kentucky Historical Society, and it has not killed anyone since. Thank God. And that is the conjured chest. That was a good one. I've never heard of that. It was definitely one of them. <laughs> it's a little bit different than what we normally do. Like, yeah, we've done dolls, but this one is like a, a piece of furniture. I like the furniture stories, though, because it's just like, like, like with all so like mundane, this, like just the weirdest things. This went through your whole ass family history for hundreds? For, question mark? Like a hundred years, about a hundred. Yeah, roughly. What is that? A centennial? Century? Century. Yeah, not a centennial uh, at all. Don't know anyway, centennial, but yeah, it was in your whole ass family for a century, and y'all are. St- Still putting shit in this thing. Right? And then you brought Sonny into it. You're just like, yeah, neighbor man, come put your hunting overalls in there. You know what? It very well could have been her husband was like, yeah, go ahead and put your hunting stuff. Like, my wife thinks this thing is cursed, but she's crazy. What a husband thing to do. That just goes (laughs) to show you, husbands, you better believe your wife when she's like, I swear to God that iron is possessed. Every time I touch it, someone dies. Like, don't you see what's happening here? I'm sorry. I just can't starch your linens anymore. We're going to have to get a new iron. Preferably an upgrade. Oh, I just don't iron. I don't think I've ever ironed. Oh, I don't iron iron. I only iron when it's like nice clothes. Oh, I just treat them like all the (laughs) other clothes. (laughs) They're just clothes. There's no such thing as nice clothes. No, they're all just clothes. Look, my washing machine has a delicate cycle. So mine does too, but I still iron yeah. like my clothes that I want nice and flat. Oh, yeah, no, I just hang them up. Now, if it's like a ball gown, I'll take it to get it dry. Okay, but like Cody's shirts, like his nice button up shirts, we iron those. Oh, James doesn't have any. No, he he has like polos, but. I just like take them out and hang them up. Now, if they get wrinkly, I'll hang them in the bathroom, you know, with the hot water, like steam them. Yeah, but I forget to do that. So I have to iron. Well, we don't even own an iron, so I don't have a choice. (laughs) Steam or no steam. I threw ours away because I (laughs) dropped it and it got dented. And I threw ours away because it kept killing people. Well, that would make, was it in your hand when it would kill people? Just once. Just once. Okay. Yeah. No big deal. But after but. that, I threw it away and it never happened again. <laughs> well, you know what? Those curses, they're tricky to uh, to break sometimes. Yeah, you need like a whole ass elm of a man that planted the tree on accident without telling you and a stuffed pig or something. Well, you know, at least you know what you need for them. Okay, you're you're still just waiting for that random family friend to bring by the stuffed animal that you need. I mean, honestly, like I would enjoy a taxidermied animal. I am that person. Like anybody got like a chupacabra or something, a jackalope that would be cool. Oh wow, you're going for it. Okay, you guys have a jackalope, a stuffed jackalope. Amanda wants it. Yeah, she's we're close friends now. She needs it to break a curse. 
Yes. It, the curse breaking rule book specifically said a friend has to gift you a cursed jackalope without you asking. Bryce has to ask. So this is me asking for her. Yes. See? We got this. So. There's always a very, loophole. Yeah. And we're just playing through that loophole right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everyone. Thank you all for listening to Hell on Heels podcast. To see pictures from this episode, you can follow us on Instagram at Hell on Heels podcast, Twitter at Hell on Heels pod, or Facebook by searching Hell on Heels podcast. You can find us on Linktree by typing in Hell on Heels podcast. That will bring up all of the links to all of the things. If you want to support us, please like, review, rate, share, and subscribe on your preferred listening platforms. If you want to take your support one step further so we can create more content for you guys, you can donate through Patreon. Or we're working to release specials for our patrons. If you have your own true crime or paranormal stories, suggestions, or just words of encouragement, please email us at hellonheelspodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to tell your friends to listen with you. And this has been Hell on Heels Podcast. Bye. Bye.